Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Thank you for joining us for the fourth episode of Monroe College's School of Criminal and Social Justice Blind Justice Podcast. I am Jody McCalla, the director of the School of Criminal and Social Justice on the New Rochelle campus. And in today's episode, we're going to explore the complex issue of hate crime. Hate crimes are on the rise in the United States, and we'll explore how the conduit of social media is used to harbor and spread dangerous belief systems. Today, we have two incredible Monroe College professors as guests. Professor Javette Johnson has been prosecuting crimes in New York City for over 20 years. She is currently the director of the Rikers Island Sex Crimes Prosecutions Initiative and serves as an adjunct professor at Monroe College. Professor Michael Liddy has been litigating for over 30 years, teaching for over 30 years, and preaching over 20 years. He is currently the senior policy advisor at New York City Citywide Administrative Services and also serves as an adjunct in the King Graduate School of Monroe College. So thank you both for joining us. So first, before we start, I want to set the stage and explain the definition of hate crime. In the simplest terms, a hate crime must include both hate and a crime. The term hate can be misleading. When used in a hate crime law, the word hate doesn't mean rage, anger, or general dislike. In this context, hate means bias against a people or group. So according to the United States Department of Justice, hate crime is defined as a criminal offense that is motivated in whole or in part by the offender's bias against a particular race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other characteristic. This bias can be expressed through physical violence, threats, intimidation, or property damage. Now it's time to get some deeper insights from our esteemed guest. So I'll start with you, Professor Liddy. There are many motivations for why people commit crimes. Can you give us some insight into what leads a person to commit a hate crime? Uh, The short answer is no. I cannot. Let's take off crime for a minute and let's focus on hate. What makes a person hate? We're born with that ability to hate, to like, to dislike. But when you add crime onto it, a crime is not a crime unless it's defined by law. But the hate is what motivates one to commit a crime and for society to define it as a crime. Crime is based on one's behavior, but the hate is internal. It is what motivates one to commit a certain act, a behavior that may rise to the level of a crime. And one of the schools of thought that conditioned many decision makers over the years around the world and in the United States is a school of eugenics. And that school led to, I would say, laying the foundation of where we are today. 
one of the things that we factor in and we talk about is the unjust study of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment from 1932 to 1972. For 40 years, it was this experiment. And it was not meant to last 40 years. It was meant to last six months. And the only reason we know about it is because a whistleblower blew the whistle in 1972. But in the context of the representative from the federal government going to McCoon County, Alabama, one of the poorest counties, just to see the effect of syphilis on the black skin of men, black men, begs the question, why would they need to study that in the Great Depression? And then you take into account prior to that, Margaret Sanger, a student of the School of Thought of Eugenics, who authorized the use of doctors sterilizing young African-American girls when they went to Planned Parenthood without their knowledge. And then later on in the 1970s is a state Supreme Court case in California where Mexican women were sterilized. And then during the Trump administration, there's also a case in California where women were sterilized, all legitimized by the federal government. So I would categorize that as hate and a crime but no one was ever prosecuted for the Tuskegee experiment. The hospital in the case in 1978, the judge ruled in favor of the doctor and the hospital. That was not deemed to be a crime. So there are many other factors, and we don't have enough time during this podcast to try to regulate, narrow, and acutely define hate crime. But I would direct our attention to a study, a Pew study that was done in 2008 that projected in 2050 the majority of non-Hispanic population would be the minority. In other words, the white population. And from that, a number of groups rose up. And, you know, we can get into details more about that. But that's an important uh, mark to understand where we are with hate crimes. Thank you, Professor Liddy. And as you stated, prejudice and fear do contribute to hate crime. So there are laws in the United States, hate crime laws that are intended to provide protection to groups that have been marginalized or discriminated against. Professor Johnson, can you describe some of the laws that exist to protect people from hate crimes? Sure. So here in New York, because that is what I can speak on, there are two main statutes that exist to protect people from hate crimes. There's Penal Law Section 48505, which is basically a law, and it's, it talks about what you stated in the beginning. And under that law, to prove a hate crime, the people, prosecution, we would be required to establish that the person that they were selected or the act was committed against them in whole or substantial part because of the victim's protected class. 
and what's unique about this law is one of the things that we know is that when it comes to prosecuting a crime, we never have to prove motive. We never have to prove why a crime happened. It's our job to prove that a crime happened and that the defendant committed the crime. And we have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's that the crime happened and that the defendant committed the crime. We often tell jurors, we may never know why, because the fact is we don't always know why. However, when it comes to hate crimes, we have to have a motive. The motive of the crime is inherent in the statute. You know, the fact that we have to prove in whole or in not just in part, but in substantial part, that the crime was committed because of the fact that the victim was targeted because of who they are, of what they are. That's under the penal law 48505. We also have an, uh, another statute, which is the uh, aggravated harassment statute. It's basically, it's aggravated harassment in the first degree. It's a, uh, you know, which makes it, a, it's a, it's a felony. They're both can be felonies and misdemeanors. And it's also the same thing. <laughs> you know, we have to prove, we have to prove the motive. We have to prove why that the victim of the crime, that they were targeted because of who they are, because of what they are, who they are, whether it be your gender, whether it be your sexual orientation, whether it be your race, your religion, all of that are protected classes. And if we are able to prove that the crime is a hate crime, it affects the sentencing. It affects the sentencing of uh, the crime. When it's time for the defendant in a case to be sentenced, then if we prove that it is a hate crime, then the sentence is elevated. It's an elevated sentence. Thank you, Professor Johnson. So to your point, could you give us some examples of what type of evidence will be used to prove that a crime was motivated by hate? Absolutely. So because we have to actually prove motive, then we're going to need basically, let's just say, for example, we're talking about an assault. You know, did the defendant make any statements while he was assaulting the victim? Does the defendant have any tattoos on his or her body that shows that, you know, that they belong to a particular group? I'll give you an example. If you see somebody with the tattoo 88, right, there are some people who are part of a a white supremacist group. And so they'll have the number 88 tattooed on them, which means H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. So if you see 88, that's two H's that stands for Hal Hitler. So the fact of the matter is you have to have knowledge and know about stuff like, you know, know about things like that to see how to see how it can be hidden and how it's subversive. So but, you know, back to your question. Did the defendant make any statements? Did he say anything prior to the incident occurring? Did he say anything during the incident occurring regarding the gender or, you know, I said the the gender, the race, the religion of the person that they attacked? You know, was this a planned attack? If it was a planned attack, you want to see, is there anything in their phone, anything in their computers? Are they a part of, like I said, any groups? 
where they target like a white supremacist group, but any group that targets what so happens to be the victim in that case. Uh, you want to look at their Facebook accounts to see if they're posting anything, not just Facebook, other social media. Are they posting anything that shows bias or hatred towards the group of the person that they've attacked. These are all types of things that we have to look for. Witnesses. Are there any witnesses that, you know, that the defendant has said anything to prior to the incident or during the incident? These are all types of basically evidence that, you know, we would need to look for to prove that they actually committed the crime and that was the motivation. There are a lot of, not to say a lot, I can't say, I can't give a value to it, but sometimes there are cases where we think that it was motivated by hate, but it turns out that it's not. It may seem obvious to a layman, to the regular person, that, oh my gosh, that's a hate crime, when it's not. Like, for I'll, I'll give you an example. If, let's just say, two people are driving, and it's a road rage incident, okay, and the road rage incident turns into a car crash, and it turns out that one of the drivers is Asian, and when they, you know, they both get out of the car and they start arguing and the non-Asian driver starts cursing and attacking the Asian driver and then makes comments about, you know, Asians and the fact that they're bad drivers. That's not something that may be considered a hate crime. To others, they would think, well, of course it's a hate crime because of the fact that the person made all of those anti-Asian comments. But in that particular case, it's, was that the motivation of the perpetrator or was it just an, an effect of them being outraged you know because it was a road rage incident before that turned into something else so you have to really look at when you're looking at a hate crime and whether or not it actually is a hate crime you have to look at the motivation of the crime from the beginning what was the motivation of the crime from the absolute beginning was it totally or substantially in part you know because of the status of the victim. So that analysis is unfortunately happening right now in Allen, Texas. The second deadliest mass mm-hmm. shooting occurred on Saturday, May 6th. And a preliminary review of what is believed to be the shooter's social media accounts reveals hundreds of posts that include racially or ethnically motivated violent extremist rhetoric including neo-Nazi material and material espousing white supremacy. There were tattoos on the gunmen that appear to be aligned with white supremacist groups. So, you know, this is something that I'm sure they are looking at there in Texas. And further, in 2021, the Southern Poverty Law Center documented over a thousand hate and anti-government extremist groups across the United States. So to the social media point, Professor Liddy, let us know, how does social media harbor and spread dangerous belief systems? That's a fair question, because one of the primary reasons why it's able to communicate information that may motivate hate is because it's unregulated. I'm not sure that we can regulate that medium because there's a conflict within the law itself. We want to preserve and protect the First Amendment, but it's the right of the First Amendment that allows 
hate-filled communication to persist. You know, there's a scripture that says in the book of Leviticus, it says, do not turn to medium or seek them out. News outlets are all media, the media or the mediums. The problem, though, is they're contained with messages that are limited to certain audiences and they're unregulated. Then it begs the question, how do you regulate it? Well, right now we have a legislative branch that consists of half the elected bodies who are determined not to regulate any form of the news media because many of the people supporting them are the same people listening to these groups. Now, we may turn to the court system and the judiciary to try to find some solution, but that's limited because even is as um, Professor Johnson pointed out, even if we successfully prosecute hate crime, it does not stop it. It does not prevent it because the source of the communication, which by the way, I have to admit, has been legitimized by the evangelical church. And what the church did was put its stamp of approval on the messages communicated to certain groups as though it's legitimate. So there's this mechanism that's in place, the media, that is supported by the legitimacy of those who are representing God. And those who listen specifically to subgroups, for example, those who get the information solely from one particular medium all the time, they're conditioned. There's a saying in management where you stand depends on where you sit. And where you sit depends on how you're conditioned. And there are numerous studies that were done. You can condition people over time, positively and negatively. If they constantly hear negative news about other people, they're going to start to believe. At some point, the perception becomes a reality. And we are not in a place where we can even talk about regulating certain news outlets yet, or the mediums. Thank you, Professor Liddy. And Professor Johnson, as a prosecutor, so as Professor Liddy mentioned, the First Amendment protects freedom of expression. And people cannot be prosecuted simply for expressing offensive beliefs. But how does social media impact your job as a prosecutor when it comes to prosecuting these types of crimes? Well, so here's the thing when it comes to, so you're so correct, right? The First Amendment, it protects speech, but it doesn't protect all speech. Speech that is not protected is any speech that is considered obscene. So for speech not to be protected, it would have to be speech that is considered obscene. And speech is not just and, you know, the Supreme Court has decided, um, and there are cases that have been decided, that speech is not just the spoken word. Speech can be gestures. Speech can be the written word. All of it is considered speech. So one thing is you have to look at is not just the content of the speech and what is being said, also what the platform of the speech is. Because yes, the First Amendment does give 
protections. However, if the platform that the user, right, is using to spread their particular speech, whoever owns the platform can definitely suspend their account. They can shut them down. So there are ways in which a person who is spreading this kind of vitriol, uh, you know, can be stopped. I don't want to say it's not totally stopped, but, you know, there's a way to combat it. However, however, the people, the companies like, for instance, you know, Twitter has suspended accounts. Facebook has suspended accounts when they found out what is being spread. But one of the issues is, is that the people with the power to do that, they have to know about the speech. They have to know what is what it is being used for in order to take that step, in order to suspend that speech. As to your question about as a prosecutor, to be able to use that information is we have to have it. If we have that information, if we have the speech, if we have the Facebook, the Twitter account, and the speech on the Twitter, and we have the the Facebook and Kick and whatever other social media. If we have that proof, then we would we would be able to use it to show the intent and the motive of the perpetrator, if it is connected to a crime. And it's also not just in criminal. You know, it's not just also in criminal law. Within the last not too long ago, I believe it was NYPD. Not sure, but I believe it was NYPD who was like the officer who was in charge of EEO. You know, was actually making like racist comments. I'm not sure if it was homophobic, but I definitely think it was like made some racist comments on social media. And you know, so of course you know, it was like immediate action was taken when they found that this was, this is the person who is in charge of, you know, equal opportunity in our organization. And then he is in fact making these comments online. Just to go back to the question, it's first and foremost, we have to identify it. We have to identify the comments. We have to identify the speech. Once the speech is identified, it has to be authenticated. And when I say authenticated, meaning that we have to be able to show that this person actually made the speech, you know, and it wasn't somebody else using that person's social media. And then once it's authenticated, then from that point, then it can be used in any prosecution if it is connected to the crime and what the person is accused of. Thank you, Professor Johnson. So we spoke a lot about hate crimes and people that perpetrate hate crimes and how we prosecute it. But I want to pivot a bit to talk about the impact of hate crimes on the victims and society. So I'll ask you first, Professor Liddy, to opine on that. The impact of hate crime on society and the victims. That's a very broad topic because I think back to the 1930s and the Scottsboro Boys uh, case where I believe it was nine young boys who were looking for jobs, and they were accused falsely of sexually assaulting two young white um, girls in the South. There were three trials. In essence, what happened was there was jury nullification, where even if they were proven to where the accused white men who lynched some of them and harmed others, even if it was proven at trial, the jury says, of their peers, white men only. 
said that we're not going to render a verdict against them. So it begs the question, who's really the victims? Um, the accused, um, in that case, in that context, those young black boys in the Tuskegee experiment, the almost 400 black men, or the victims, really the victims? And we have to define who the victims are. I think of the context in which we define victims. In, you know, um, Javet speaks about cases in Bronx County. Well, there's 62 counties in New York State. Um, will, for the same crime, same evidence, same prosecution in different county, will we get the same outcome? Would the victims be perceived as being victims? I was a defense attorney in the Bronx at one point, and many of the domestic violence cases that I represented, it was men accused of harming their significant other, girlfriend, and or wife. And a few weeks later, oftentimes, the victim, the girlfriend, wife, would come to me and say, I do not wish to proceed with this case against my boyfriend or husband. But if I don't, then the DA's office is threatening to prosecute me. And then at that point, I said, well, I can't give you advice. You may have to get an attorney for yourself. And uh, even, you know, I said there's 62 counties in New York State, but if you're in another state, let's say Texas, or take the state down, down south, the victims are often perceived differently. What's the impact of hate crime on society at large? The impact is great, not only on economics, not only on employment, but on our morale. What we used to perceive as the difference between clear-cut right and wrong is no longer as clear-cut as we used to think it was. If someone shoots and kills someone, then we'll say that person should be prosecuted. Now we say, well, it all depends. The person knocked on my door, the person, as one case pointed out, allegedly banged on the door and, and therefore I had to shoot, I had to stand my ground. It depends on which state you're in and the type of laws that are being enforced. And much of it is motivated by hate because the messaging through both some of the churches that they they're here, the spiritual institutions or the religious institutions and the news outlets are reinforcing the perception that if they look different from you, then they're not the real victims. The real victims are people who look more aligned to you. That's why in the case of, I forgot the name of the case where a young boy took an AR-15 and went to another state, shot and killed some protesters. And he was acquitted. And it begs the question, well, who's the real victim here? Well, one news outlet would say, well, the shooter was the victim. And I think we have a larger problem where I don't know if the solution is necessarily limited to the courts or the judiciary, where some of the members of the judiciary are now perceived as being immoral based on their financial relationships with their friends. I'm thinking, of course, of Clarence Thomas. So the impact of hate crime, and we try our best to prosecute them, but the root of it 
is still how we perceive human beings. I think there's a deeper issue here where we can't even come to grips with the respect for each other. So I think we have a long way to go. And I just want to add to that, if you don't mind, it's that I think also when it comes to the victims of hate crimes, for them, I believe people who are victims of hate crimes, that not only them, not only the victims of hate crimes, but other people who are, you know, of the same gender or the same race, religion, creed, that the effect that it has on you is it causes you to live and navigate the world from a place of fear because of the fact that, uh, and, and I'll give you an example, as I'm sitting here thinking, I'll give you an example. You know, if one day you are walking down the street and let's just say you decide to cut through an alley and you get robbed. It's unfortunate you get robbed at gunpoint. Yes, that is going to be very traumatic for you. And you can say to yourself, well, you know what? I will never walk down a dark street or an alley again, you know, and that may help you and you're in dealing with your trauma of being robbed. However, if you are attacked simply because of the color of your skin or because of your religion, because of your race, because of your gender, because of your sexual orientation, these are things about you that are never going to change. These are things that are inherent about you and they are not going to change. So it's going to make you feel like you can always be and you will always be a victim. So that type of trauma that you live with, it's going to be a trauma that you live with that is connected to who you are as a person. So I believe that for victims of hate crimes, that makes it worse because it isn't that, oh, you were beat up because you owed somebody money, you know, so, you know, or something that, you know, so the, the, the reason why it happened to you is something that will probably never happen again. When it's connected to who you are as a person, it's going to change who you are and it, it makes you live in fear. And then if, you know, you have family members or other people who have seen it happen to you, it can make them live in fear because they have the same trait as you. So for me, you know, that's how I look at it when it comes to victims of hate crimes and how their lives are affected by hate crimes. And uh, the only thing I would add to that, and I, I totally agree with everything that was said, is unless we as a society makes a concerted effort to address hate that leads to hate crime, then we would not fear any better than the Roman Empire that was not conquered from without, but imploded from within because of immorality and corruption. So what are some other strategies that we can implement to prevent hate crime? Professor Liddy? That's a fair question. First, we have to have a serious and honest conversation with each other. And one of the questions that must be asked is, well, what is it about me that you dislike? What is it about my attributes that I cannot change that you dislike? And why do you dislike it? What did I do to make you dislike me? I'm thinking about, there is an article from the 1930s. Um, I forgot the name of the author, but it's entitled How Jews Became White Folks. And the author was a white Jewish woman. And she said the goal was to be engrafted into whiteness. Because if you were engrafted into the white realm, 
the white way of thinking, then whiteness was rightness. Well, I'm also thinking about Don, Derek Bell's book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Not everyone can be at the top. Someone has to be at the bottom. And it seems to me that we're always getting away from the bottom. And Derek Bell, former dean at Harvard Law School, the late Derek Bell, his message is still clear. It's, in essence, that until we learn to respect each other, we can learn to disagree. We can agree to disagree. But until we are able to articulate why we just don't like each other, then we can't even get to the point of agreeing about other things. And I think what needs to happen in the United States today is there needs to be some introspective thought, some serious talk about who we are as a people and where we're going as a nation. And before that could happen, we really can't even address the issues of hate crime. We cannot even agree that an assault weapon used in war should not be allowed to be purchased by civilians. But yet you can't use that weapon to kill animals. We can't even get to the table and have that discussion. So we're a long way off. I do have hope, however. I have hope in the young people. And that's one of the reasons I teach. I think the future is bright, but where we are now is gloomy. Thank you, Professor Liddy. Professor Johnson, your thoughts? Yes, I think hate is not innate. It's learned. It's a learned behavior. So it boils down to education and teaching because, you know, you'll see small children playing together and you'll see children of different races playing together, different genders playing together um, because they don't care. They're not looking at each other, seeing Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. They're not seeing that. They're seeing another child. I believe the hate is then instilled by the people who are surrounding them, what they're seeing on TV, what they're seeing on social media, everything that is that is surrounding them, all the different mediums and what they're seeing is that is what is teaching the hate. So I don't have a clear answer, but what I can say is it definitely has to stem from education. It has to stem from teaching children as they're small so that they can grow up and then be able to understand, you know, how we are the same and not focus on how we are different. And I think that's probably one of the best ways for us to be able to really do something about hate. I think also not forgetting our history because history repeats itself. And when you try to cancel history, it definitely repeats itself. So be, I think always teaching, you know, being historically correct and teaching children history and, you know, basically the history of the United States and what this country was built on and actually what this country was built on, slavery. And we have to talk about the Holocaust and we have to talk about you know, the genocide of, of Native Americans. Like we have to talk all, we have to talk about all of that. Children have to be taught all of that. I think they have to have an accurate view of this world, of history, and they have to learn. And they also have to be taught, you know, I think also children have to be taught how to have, 
a healthy self-esteem because sometimes, you know, when children don't have a healthy self-esteem, you know, they can become susceptible, you know, they can become susceptible to hate as an outlet for, you know, if they're having issues, if they're being picked on, if they're being bullied. So I think these are several things that we have to look at, definitely concentrate on and look at when it comes to, you know, eradicating hate. I do think, however, and I would add one thing, there was a fundamental understanding that we are made in the image of God. God loves us and we should love each other. I don't hear anything about love or respect for our fellow human beings. And what reinforces that, the messaging, is the instant access we have through the media, the telephones, the tablets. You know, something happens around the world and we, we will know it immediately. Well, so too we get constant reinforcement of the messaging through the medium that we listen to, whether positive or negative. Um, and I think we need to take a step back and remember two months ago, three months ago, the United Nations said there were 8.5 billion people in the world. A hundred years from now, they will not be here. So there's something greater, someone greater than us. And we need to remember we are fearfully and wonderfully made in our creators, every single one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we need to see the good in ourselves and the good in other people. Until we do that, we're going, someone is going to whisper something in our ear and we're going to run with it and dislike other people. Thank you both for sharing your thoughts and your professional opinions on this very complex topic of hate crimes. We all have to do our part to educate each other and our children and to have those conversations that Professor Liddy spoke about. Barack Obama once said, those who hate you don't know you. So we do have to join together in order to eradicate this. If you believe you are the victim or witnessed a hate crime for emergencies, press dial 911 or report the crime to your local police and follow up the support to the FBI tip line at 1-800-225-5324. Thank you for listening to this episode. Join us for our next episode, Narcotics on the Rise and the Looming Threat of Fentanyl. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.